Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with you. And I want to remind you, first and foremost, that this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. This does not constitute a therapeutic relationship. And I strongly recommend you seek a therapist in your area that just will explore your needs so that you can get the help you're looking for. So today's conversation is part of a series that we're doing, especially for Pride Month. Then, because we're breaking our usual cadence by doing multiple video, multiple not not videos, multiple podcasts for this particular month of June, which is Pride. So my next guest here is someone who has worked in the community and who's here to work talking much more about a segment that. I think it doesn't get as much of the attention, in, even though in these last several years, it has been much more poignant of a section that we need to be paying attention to. I'm here to talk with Lita Val. Lita Val is a licensed marriage and family therapist, is a healer who happens to be a licensed marriage and family therapist working in gender specialty care in private practice. In addition to psychotherapy, she offers consultation and educational services to other professionals or agencies in gender-affirming and trans-competent healthcare. She is profoundly dedicated to understanding how gender-based complex trauma assaults the body's autonomic nervous system, leaving many gender-expansive folks to struggle with maladaptive affects. Behavior and cognitive patterns that persist in order to reconcile a perceived threat upon their emotional safety, even when experiencing affirming environments and circumstances. Personally, Lita is a woman of trans experience with a Persian heritage. She's a philosopher by nature and very curious about existence. She's extremely enjoys being a student and learning about the vast complexity of the human experience. This includes her interest in art and science. In addition, Lita is very much into athletics and fitness as she appreciates the value of how a human body contributes to a healthy mind. She also has a huge passion for music, particularly hip hop, rap, and soul music, even dabbles as an MC, lyricist, and poet. She enjoys her art, using her art as a form of self-expression, whether drawing or painting. Lita is a huge lover of film and that appreciates the, or, uh, no, that attempts to reveal the main aspects of what it means to be human. So much so, she recently began screenwriting for her first feature-length screenplay after having contributed on a short screenplay that was that was adapted and shot as part of the trans infinity work welcome to untying knots lita thank you for having me perry appreciate it thank you for all those uh, kind words oh <laughs> uh, you're most appreciated so as my one of my standard questions is how did you get here how did i get here you know we're not talking about uh you know creation versus evolution um mm. I, I imagine how did i get here to become a marriage and family therapists, providing services, um, Mm -hmm. helping folks. Well, like a lot of things, it comes back to my own personal story, my own journey as a human being struggling to find myself and really find my path when it came to my career. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that a lot of people can probably relate to. 
um, those who have the opportunity to even contemplate that, as I recognize some people never get that op opportunity. But being a high school um, student, you know, uh, heard a lot of different input from voices. And as you may have heard in my bio, someone of Persian heritage, um, a lot of people do understand that in the Persian culture is highly valued to being um, self-sufficient, independent, financially mm -hmm. stable. And because Persian culture uh, is one that really reinforces that and, and sees it as attainable really um, in the simplest forms as either being a doctor or lawyer or an engineer, mm -hmm. those were my three choices. Um, and so the interesting part of this is that um, while I wanted to, and I did apply as a major in, in the biological sciences, psychopharmacology, or not psychopharmacology, pharmacology, pathology, because I wanted to research um, cures for diseases. That was kind of mm -hmm. where my heart, you know, was aimed towards. And, but I was always good in the science and math, um, you know, disciplines. And so I was really, um, strongly encouraged to change a bunch of my applications to indicate engineering and try mm -hmm. to get into a school for engineering and contemplate that. And, you know, I found electrical engineering a little bit interesting, electricity. Okay, I'm fascinated. What's going on with that? Um, and I did get into Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and that was one of the schools where I had indicated engineering. And so for three years of just being combative and challenging my parents around, this is not what I want to do. It doesn't mm -hmm. really bring me any joy. It really was in my undergraduate when I really just couldn't fake it anymore. I couldn't try to present um, to the world as if I'm male. And um, in the pursuit of my own uh, identity and, and, and kind of finding what my future lies in terms of what do I do with this information? And just for those who are wondering, this is around 1998, 99, 2000, just to give some context about questioning my identity and, and what would it mean at that juncture um, to transition and, and what were the risks and benefits. And, and really, I just saw that no matter all the risks, the one benefit was like, I'm gonna live my life, not somebody else's life. Uh, I'm not gonna live a gender others want me. I'm not gonna live a career path that others want me. And once I really embraced that it, during my undergrad, I really started to realize I want to help others kind of find their truths and, and just live authentically, despite all the messages that, you know, say, well, it's scary, it's risky, or you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was really because I wanted to help a lot of the people and it didn't have to be just regarding gender identity, um, mm -hmm. just really live their authentic selves. So that's, that's how I kind of got started into this. Very nice. And with that and the work that you do, what would you say because this is going to be airing during Pride Month, what do you think? What would you say is kind of a general state or thing that is people should really know about what it means to be a BIPOC trans person? Yeah, um, I mean, it means a lot of things, and I think first and foremost, it means um, what level of privileges have I had as a BIPOC trans person. Um, because even the term BIPOC, you know, uh, language evolves and, and words come into usage um, when other words are no longer seeming to be fit. Um, I am someone who was born in Iran of Persian heritage. Um, 
racially, my category in terms of the US's standards is considered white, uh, white, not Hispanic. Um, and so I'm afforded so many privileges that even coming to terms with identifying as BIPOC is one that I, I still wrestle with. Um, you know, I'm 100% Persian as far as I know, but I wonder if folks who are multiracial, multi-ethnic sometimes struggle about feeling where they fit um, as well. But I eventually embraced BIPOC because I wanted to make sure at the very least I can have conversations about my awareness around my privileges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the biggest challenges are, um, I mean, there's so many of them because I'm so far removed from trying to seek grad school, apply, perform, graduate, you know, gain, get hours of experience and tests. I think the main thing is that as a trans person, it's almost like you have to put your life on hold and yet life doesn't stop for you. You know, mm-hmm. when it comes to transition, it comes to the, the delicate process of letting other people in to know you. I mean, taking the risk to be yourself out in this world. And, and we see what happens to, to trans people um, and what can happen, you know, uh, discrimination, abuse, violence, um, exploitation. And, and those are some of the things that I've already experienced. Um, and I'm somehow still here as a uh, marriage family therapist. So I think that would be the biggest thing that stands out right now is that it's almost like have to take a chunk out. And I see that challenge on a couple other fronts. Um, one, being a trans uh, therapist, and this is more about being trans than mm-hmm. BIPOC, but um, a lot of my cis colleagues, uh, while they probably have to occasionally step away to get a medical procedure or something, it's most typically related to something, either they're choosing or it's a response to something pathological. Some, But I need to take off time from work just to be able to get procedures that, you know, improve my mental health that cis people don't. Mm-hmm. And that is that I have to get gender affirming procedures uh, based on my experience of dysphoria. And that's income that I don't earn in a private practice, which is something that um, I learned, you know, quickly is just a difference. Uh, another thing is um, more related to um, serving the trans community is that I have a lot of different clients who take time off because they take to get procedures or recovering from procedures. Um, so those are some of the things that I noticed just uniquely about um, being trans, but also working, you know, dedicating my, my mm-hmm. practice to kind of working trans and non-binary and, and gender diverse folks. Mm-hmm. One of the big re- realities of just dealing with this, I mean, I, I know I am a cis male, but still dealing with the standpoint, even as a business owner, is like when I need to take time off, yeah, how do I have a guy to cover? And then throw in the intersectionality of the trans identity, coupled with both the privileges and the lack of privileges that comes with being BIPOC, those medical needs become even more, uh, more important. They're very important. And a lot of mental space is taken up just contemplating when should I do it? How do Mm -hmm. I do it? You know, Mm -hmm. there are some situations um, where, you know, you're at the mercy of when they have an opening. So if you're doing that as a trans therapist, um, you know, through, let's say surgery through a private practice, you have a little bit more influence in scheduling it. But if Mm -hmm. you're going through an HMO system, uh, which a lot of folks, uh, Kaiser Permanente's, is utilized for that. It's really on their timetable. So mm-hmm. there's just a lot of coordinating it. And just, I, I'd say like a lot of mental labor around just kind of making sure that clients are not left feeling abandoned in any way. 
and also because of this and being a trans therapist, like I inform clients of this and, and how mm-hmm. often have we been told, you know, like, well, keep your own personal stuff out of it. But the thing is my community seems to thrive and benefit in therapy when they can get a sense of normalization mm-hmm. of, wow, the therapist who's sitting across from me also has different things they have to factor in and, and, and figure out. Like maybe the goal isn't eliminating all struggle, but just um, identifying all the ways to, you know, uh, address struggle, all the different mm-hmm. options. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. that's just that little piece. And there's so many other things I could probably go off on just being BIPOC trans therapist that I think a lot of the BIPOC trans folks know. Um, but yeah, I, I guess other folks might want to learn about. Well, this is a chance to start giving, well, not the full masterclass, at least a snippet of it. And I think this also goes back to what was read in your bio about the aspect of um, trying to have an affirming environment, but yet you have the circumstances that feel like you can't be affirmed, such as the scheduling factor, such as the aspect of taking time off for work. And all of that contributes to, as as you said, gender-based complex trauma. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would have to say that, again, that example of um, seeking out like a medical intervention that's gender affirming, you know, propped up for me as well in grad school. And, and, you know, even before that, trying to figure out what um, pre-requirement courses I needed, um, Mm -hmm. because just a big old um, news break, uh, I never got my undergrad in psychology. I just stuck to the electrical engineering and I, and I, you know, got that. So there was definitely some coursework that I had to do before I can even apply to grad school. And mm-hmm. um, one of the things that actually, I don't recall, actually, this might be something. Um, this was right after I graduated undergrad and I pretty immediately uh, applied to San Jose state and San Francisco state um, for masters in social work um, mm-hmm. programs. And I didn't get in. Um, and I kind of look back and I realize, um, you know, part of it might've been the pre you know, coursework and, you know, perhaps they were imagining this person with an engineering degree, um, you know, but also I think my transness was invisible. I think I may have applied because that would have been before any transition or legal name change. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to go to grad school basically prior to a transition, all of which I think would have changed the trajectory of my career. I think Mm. it would have been so very different um, knowing how once you enter an environment like a graduate program, it's like people already know you one way, um, which is precisely why I didn't transition when I was in San Luis Obispo, um, you know, even with like (laughs) the most important thing being it's highly um, high percentage of white people, uh, that reside there and, and just the culture um, is just less diverse than what I'm accustomed to the Bay Area. Um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of different factors um, that I, I would say that the biggest challenge is being a BIPOC trans therapist has nothing really to do with the therapy part. Um, you know, there are going to be moments where um, the way grad school is taught that, you know, the um, it'll be pretty clear and obvious the kind of uh, benefits of being cis or, or the privileges of, you know, um, cis people don't have to study and understand cisgenderness necessarily. 
Um, but I think that that's just kind of systemic through all different parts of my career. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where what I'm sensing right now. Mm -hmm. And you bring up so much in that, and there's quite a depth, especially in that standpoint of, yeah, what we are taught. And it also gets that standpoint of how is that normalized? And how does how does that play into one, our BIPOCness, two, our LGBT transness? How does it also then play into how our field is interacting and providing that support? Because I know at least in some of the conversations I've had with other uh, trans individuals who've gone uh, from male to female or female to male or even gone to the non-binary route, um, so much gets so caught up into the body and the genitals as opposed to what is the experience? What does it mean to sit and have coffee? What does it mean to have this job? that also are so influencing as well. Yeah, I, I think what, what you're kind of referring to is actually some of the stuff I was pretty oblivious to. Um, when I was in grad school, you know, I mean, it was still kind of, grad school was 2007, 2010, and um, transition for me, social transition began in 2004. Mm -hmm. So I think the first good five, 10 years, just a lot of it is just adapting to society. And, and in mm -hmm. my unique case, um, I didn't have really family support. I estranged myself from parents that for their own reasons, their own fears, they had their bias in what they thought I should do or, or, or respond and, and their own lack of awareness and education being raised, um, you know, in Iran, um, you know, born in the late forties, mm -hmm. you know, what are they going to understand about this stuff that was barely not even understood here in the U S um, but it was, you know, really once I went to grad school and I felt like I started understanding the human experience from a different perspective. And really it took another um, seven years, graduated 2010. It wasn't until 2017 where what really sparked my values that, that exist today and, and that really focus and center BIPOC trans people um, is really um, 2017, a combination of the intimate moments um, with, you know, connecting and meeting someone who really saw all of me and, and what was lovable, um, a conference where I just felt in community, um, standing in community, even when um, anti-trans folks were invited to the conference and we protested and, 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 and we demanded negotiation. Um, and being involved with the, a short film, which um, you mentioned, it's called Transfinite. Mm -hmm. um, those of you interested, uh, transfinitefilm.com. Uh, you can definitely look it up. And I contributed, uh, you know, a uh, short film screenplay that got adapted. So what they shot wasn't eventually uh, what I had written, but it sparked kind of the, the, the concepts that, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then just being on set and, and really just no, no, nothing but queer and trans people, in the cast and crew and and just the extent that I was invited in like as if it was my story even when mm -hmm. it was adapted and it just I felt seen and and understood fully I felt loved and and you know still friends with several folks in that in that field and and that's what's sparking um really to move forward for me um to write my screenplay but the kind of the the final kind of um I don't know, the straw or however people want to put it, like 2017 was um, essentially meeting a uh, young, young trans woman of color, uh, trans Latina, 
who um, I had gotten to kind of know somewhat on Instagram. And when I met her, uh, the timing of it was interesting. You know, she looking kind of for housing. I was shifted to commit just a private practice, no more part-time private practice with some nonprofit part-time for benefits and all that. Like I was going to take the, the, the deep plunge and she moved in and it really became this mentorship, kind of a godmother, goddaughter um, relationship that really fulfilled me and just really helped me kind of tap into not a lot of, not just a lot of joy, but just a lot of stuff that I still needed to work through. And I think mm. that starting to become aware of just the role that um, developmental trauma, um, particularly when it's complex and it's just a consistent, continuous experience of not feeling safe, um, really has harmed me and has, has shaped me. And, and in some ways has shaped some of the things that today I value, some of the skill sets I have and my hypervigilance, um, which mm. one day is going to be the death of me. I don't know if I could pay attention to everything, but um, I think, yeah, 2017 was just the big kind of year for me to really start to understand degree of, mm -hmm. of pain and, and suffering that mm -hmm. still needs healing and, and just in my community, not just myself. Mm -hmm. So for those that are not familiar with it, how, is, how are we defining gender-based complex trauma? Yeah, it sounds you. like what you're talking about also leads very much into that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, I, I appreciate you asking because I did, I, I feel like I coined the term. Um, I have heard uh, gender as trauma and I mm -hmm. took a training there where I could see some of the similarities into what I was contemplating. Um, when I say gender-based complex trauma, it is complex trauma at its core. So it is this experience um, that a person has repeatedly. And that is that they continuously feel like the world is not a safe place. It typically can be attributed to an overwhelming experience that individual can't cope with. And when we realize um, we're talking about childhood, a lot of children can't cope with it and they depend on caregivers. And a lot of caregivers um, might physically be there, but not really emotionally Emotional. there and, mm. and be able to be present and, and help help the child regulate or self learn self-regulation. And um, so to me, the gender-based part is to acknowledge that this can be something that um, it's based on um, your experience of gender and that this can even be true for someone who is a cisgender man who grew up as a cisgender boy and will even say, you know, identifies as straight. They could have theirs where they may have grown up and if they felt that they weren't masculine enough in some mm -hmm. way, you know, if they were being, um, oh, why do you like that color? Or, or why is that the toy you bought? You know, these are things that, um, you know, we don't recognize as just like these experiences of bullying that sometimes go so invisible because the kid, the kid might quickly go, oh, I hate that color. Mm -hmm. and, and yet internally that kid is recognizing that, that the difference between their truth and what they're performing. And so like, to me, it feels like gender-based complex trauma. One of the ways we resolve it is performing and we perform different roles because we don't want to confront that, which is so painful that, that, which is so, um, you know, just traumatic in a lot of senses. And I feel like that is kind of what I was able to do. Like, I'm not a trans woman who, um, you know, uh, I didn't, I never thought I was very feminine growing up as a child. Mm -hmm. And even these days, 
as I socialize, I, I don't feel like I'm as feminine. And yet when I actually think back and I look back at some footage and, and I actually was quite feminine. And so somewhere along the line, I don't know how, but I picked up, it wasn't safe to let anyone in on it, to let people show this. And I know that this is something I've heard from uh, cis gay men about, you know, the, the shame associated with femininity and, and really it's always been outside messaging that, that, you know, had people feeling internalized shame. Mm -hmm. So. And how do you begin to approach that in treatment with a client? So in treatment with clients, um, I don't go, Hey, we're going to do this thing where we approach gender-based complex trauma, blah, blah, blah. Um, really the focus is, you know, starting by listening and hearing their narrative and, and really mm -hmm. a big part of it is I'm kind of trying to kind of focus on what sort of um, things that they have um, cemented as truths for them, mm -hmm. for themselves, about themselves, about the type of person they were, um, try to help them understand where they got those truths. How were they able to conclude that or, or who verified it for them? Because really in the end, as I do this, I kind of noticed that a lot of the things that led my clients to conclude, um, when I bring them up to, you know, at this point as adults, they go, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that. Or I go, okay, so what kind of thing, what kind of message would you par perhaps like to tell that young person right now? Is, is there something you could, a message you can give? So I do try to bring a lot of the past into the present. Um, I didn't realize this, um, but there's, I guess, an, an approach or modality called IFS. Um, Internal which, family systems. Yeah, which um, maybe I'm inadvertently <laughs> borrowing from. I haven't gotten to any of their trainings, but when I, the more I hear about it from different colleagues and consultation groups, I'm like, that sounds kind of familiar. How did I pick up on that? And I do know one of my biggest inspirations, though, has been narrative therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and because as I see it, a lot of us um, who are trans or again, I should just say are, are different in some way, right? Mm -hmm. We don't fit this expectation of what is ideal in society. Um, you know, disability, there, there could be so much things, body size, um, and just really exploring like, where did these things come from? And, and it's just like, we look back and it's like, no, no, that's ridiculous. What are you talking about? Like, that is not at all something that is, is truthful, but then at its core, that's when I like to go into kind of um, also bringing up the concepts uh, around polyvagal theory. Mm -hmm. And to help people recognize in the same degree that their you know, nervous system reacts if, let's say, they're driving down a freeway and suddenly, you know, another car ahead of them is skidding and just that rush of adrenaline, you know, or whatever that person's response is, maybe they do nothing, they're just stiff, um, you know, like, either way, it's, it's something that's biological. And that mm -hmm. while, you know, coming into you know, second grade with, you know, rainbow bright, you know, uh, lunchbox, you know, your life is not in danger. But when you think of a seven-year-old seeking mm -hmm. approval of friends, when a lot of elementary school age kids are first coming to socialize, you see second graders who are being mean to each other. And maybe some kid never experienced that at home. And so they're being made fun of with this lunchbox. And so really, to recognize how that can feel like a sort of social death, like, and, and now we're seeing more of it with how much society depends on social media. I have mm -hmm. clients who
who most of the time are talking about relationship conflicts with people they've never even met. It's just in text and photos. And oftentimes I, I again, have to help, help them ask questions about, well, what is real? Like, how do you know that? Mm-hmm. from those words how do you know that's what they meant with those words did you follow up with a response did you ask for clarification and and so a lot of times it's really just by uncovering all these things people start to like challenge that narrative which is part of narrative therapy challenging the dominant narrative of being the problem and a lot of my clients um most often feel like they are the problem they have mm-hmm. grown to think there's something wrong with them they're broken they're not enough and so that's yeah that's that's how the work is and um usually six to nine months we notice some significant shift um that's that's something i've kind of anecdotally kept track of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah because this is all the complexity of it mm-hmm. yeah so i think that's a perfect place for us to take our break right now So come back and for our second half here, I'm Perry Clark with Lita Val, both licensed marriage and family therapists here on Montani Knots, Minds and Souls Untippered. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. This is Perry Clark here with Lita Val, both of us in licensed marriage and family therapists. So in the break, we were checking in, and there's a variety of places we can go in the second half. But one of the ones we've talked, we're talking about is kind of an issue of pride. And pride can take many forms. And there's ways that we've all been taught that pride has been destructive. And we've seen ways pride can be destructive. And we also have ways that pride can be useful for us. And that too, in its own way, can slide into the aspect of this gender-based complex trauma and as well as being BIPOC, let's put it this way, BIPOC complex trauma uh, as well. And I'm just wondering what's your thoughts based off of what we were talking about beforehand? Yeah, Perry, um, I think what I'd like to share is just definitely <clears throat> how pride, you know, can be almost like a tool and it mm-hmm. serves us in some situations and some circumstances in, in a certain way and others, you know, 
um, in a different way. Maybe different people rely on it in different ways. Um, but something that I really had to do in you know examining my own um, you know not just privileges but just the way my um, practice had been colonized. You know, um, mm-hmm. just psychology being a practice that developed in Europe, um, and so you know. Uh, predecessors being um, Sigmund Freud's and, and, you know, Carl Jung's and and all Um, just really wanting to decolonize my practice and, and realizing that um, my identity and um, while a lot of people do perceive me as (laughs) Latina actually, but um, being Persian and, and white racially um, this idea of white supremacy was actually imparted uh, mm-hmm. from my parents. Uh, and it didn't come in the form of any sort of um, kind of uh, Western or American kind of um, KKK or any like overt ways. But um, as my family, a family of immigrants uh, came to the U.S. in 82, um, my dad having very little um, money that he saved up and uh, really escaped Iran in a lot of ways because um he worked for an American government before the revolution The revolution happened. It was just unsafe. And um, he was nearly killed. Actually, he was incarcerated or detained or held. It wasn't um, official arrests or anything because the revolution, but um, I, th- I could see as immigrant, he really needed to hold on to this um, thing that today I'm calling it Persian supremacy. Mm-hmm. And it sounds again, very horrific. I think the term supremacy just really at its core is it's violated and, 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 you know, harmed so many people. What I'm coining here, Persian supremacy is really came up really subliminally in in the context of, let's say in the news, uh, it wasn't always mentioned, but there was a, you know, scientist who was Persian who won the Nobel prize or, Mm -hmm. you know, a researcher at Harvard or Caltech or Stanford or, um, you know, something happening or an actor, oh my God, Andre Agassi, tennis player, Mm -hmm. he's Persian, you know, I, I swear I, I can remember not just the words, but the look on my dad's face of pride of like, see, we're Persians. Persians are great. And Persians had an empire. And a lot of Persians know that mm-hmm. Persians like to talk about that empire from thousands of years ago, but um, a couple thousand. But I think the key here is that my dad, as I look back, was probably holding on to this pride as a way to survive, being an immigrant, um, really uh, only socializing and connecting with other Persians here um, in the US. And that allowed for some economic survival as family members helped each other out with housing and finance. Um, But just, it took me all these years until like just last year when I realized this was a sort of kind of a form of white supremacy because Persians are deemed as white. Um, here with the current census classification. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like I was easily able to fall into that trap and which is precisely why it always bothered me. I would always challenge my dad. I'm like, I don't think, you know, his backhand, you know, Agassiz's backhand is because he's Persian or, you know, which I find out he's not even Persian, he's a Syrian. So it's like, mm. you know, the extent that a pride can go to, to convince you of like what mm-hmm. you want to believe the narrative you want to believe. And I think that that's might be the, the kind of the risk reward of holding on to pride and, and the way I see it now, well, I don't know the exact mechanism. I, I kind of think that the healthiest thing is 
maybe for my dad to have that pride in his Persian identity, um, which those of you know in the 80s, people who are from West Asia, North Africa, mm-hmm. you know, weren't really the most um, uh, respected or valued, you know, as there was, you know, attacks in Lebanon, Beirut, um, mm-hmm. U.S. Marines, there's just other things going on, um, you know, there's a lot of conflicts, which the government of the United States um, actually uh, contributed to. They, they, that was the benefit of them, but we're not going to go into the politics so much right now, but just to recognize that maybe when my dad got to a point where he made it, that I wish mm-hmm. maybe there was no longer this need to hold on to the Persian identity as being superior or the reason we do well, because I could also point to like for every one of those successes, a thousand others who aren't successful. So it can't be just one thing. So I just wonder if as humans that the same thing that gets us to a certain point, we need to discard we don't longer need that. And, and you know what? Now I'm realizing that's exactly what I do with my clients because what I do is I help them uncover what mechanisms they put in place to survive emotionally mm-hmm. in those situations. So you dumped your pink lunchbox. Do you want to go buy one today? In mm-hmm. fact, I was working with a therapist and one of the things that I found I wanted to do for my healing, and if this was a video, I could totally turn my camera and show you, is mm-hmm. I have a RC boat a remote control boat. And I bought that in part because I bought it for that little girl who back then didn't get a chance to play with it Mm because older cousins had bought some and they're probably worried that, you know, little five or six year old kid's going to break it or damage it or whatever. But I remember that memory and I remember something about not being allowed and and something about that, like, what did I do wrong or what, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think that's that's a key thing is like, can we look back and see how the things that no longer serve us, not only do they no longer serve us, but might actually make things harder. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm still doing that personally in my life. Uh, and I think that's one of those aspects too, when we talk about, especially inner child work and dealing with, you know, dealing with recovery from how many of our childhood traumas is what did we put in place to survive being a child in that household whether it was emotional abuse, physical abuse, economic abuse, mm-hmm. um, with the multifamily members or the single parent mm-hmm. may have not been able to be present as we were talking about earlier, or also had mental health issues. Yeah. And then how is it now as an adult with a different level of power in existence are how much are we still relying on those things we used to survive in the past? versus where we are now with an entirely different skill set and power base. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And just even recognizing how um, maybe a lot of things just that's the way it was, that's the way it was going to be. And and maybe part of the human journey is that we're born into this world to heal ourselves. I don't know. I don't claim Mm -hmm. to know other people's narrative about it, but I've definitely gotten more spiritual and thinking about kind of what is the purpose um, of being here, of, of existing and, and meaning of life in a sense. Um, and I think that ultimately we all define our own meaning of life. And sadly, some people's meaning, you know, is more, they're more focused on voter suppression. Other people mm-hmm. are dedicated <clears throat> to, you know, gun rights or, you know, um, so or it's like being turfs. Yeah, yeah. So being a trans exclusionary radical feminist and, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, um, currently, the 
children um, who don't identify with the gender they were assigned are the ones who are being attacked um, by primarily cis white folks who really, they know adversity, but their concepts of adversity, you know, it's, it's very different. It's very different than what the trans experience is. And one of the things that I cannot ever really relate to because I never, it never was safe enough. And that is what it's like to be a trans kid or trans teen. Mm -hmm. um, Cause yeah, they're being attacked and they're being attacked by some of my own colleagues who are supportive or claim to be supportive. And um, you know, but as I see it and as I've come across some of that material and I'm not gonna name them, but um, a lot of it I believe is their counter-transference. It's their internal fears. It's them uh, not recognizing that they're taking on the parents' fears around mm -hmm. the, what if this child isn't trans or what if they are transitioning too soon or what about this hormone or surgery? Um, they're allowing their counter-transference because when I work with families, yes, it's scary. Yes, it's hard. Um, but I'm always going to be really in touch with my feelings and I'm going to communicate with parents. And I've recently worked with a couple different families who weren't quite ready for the medical stuff. And the kid really just wanted to see me just for hormones. It wasn't to really mm -hmm. process stuff. And so one of the things I talk about is like, look, right or wrong, what you guys agree or disagree on the medical stuff, is that more important or is it the relationship? So at, a core, at its core, we go back to like, the relationship and, and mm -hmm. hearing each other out and listening and, and coming up with some sort of compromises. And, and I think that's the work. I don't think needing, you know, multiple sessions to do lengthy assessments. None of us are equipped to determine if someone should go and identify with a certain gender or should pursue a sort of social transition or medical intervention that's what the life experience is. It will reveal to you. Life is the most effective teacher we have. It will mm -hmm. show you. The thing is, when you're at that crossroad and you're questioning whether you should do something or not do something, look at all the other decisions you made in life. You know, you mm -hmm. made decisions. Everyone has. Um, so I just really want to help people uncover how they make decisions even. Like, what are the factors? How do you figure things out? You know, there's no one model. No. And which is often gets touted with our field as well is that there seems like we're supposed to be able to catch everybody. There's a central model that applies to everybody, which is not the case. And I think that naturally leads into the question of the myths and realities of therapy and the sense that, no, the therapies that might be working for Bill and Jane, middle America, are not going to be working for you or I or someone else who identifies as BIPOC or as identifies also with an LGBT and same gender loving standpoint as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, just to say one thing on that before myth and reality, uh, myth and truth. Um, I think that a lot of times people come to the therapist, they come to my office thinking that um, I have the ingredients for mm -hmm. this recipe. Um I just have the instructions <laughs> and the instructions aren't all the same. You can make carrot mm -hmm. cake. There's probably 200 different ways to make carrot cake, mm -hmm. but they have the ingredients and they got to bring the ingredients. And a lot of times people come to me, they may not experience change because they might not realize they're not bringing in the ingredients. And really it's not always easy to bring in the ingredients. Some of those ingredients have been buried for so long, um, that even if you were to dig them up, you can't really understand them. They're not in the same state. So the work is a little bit more complex. 
But to move on to myth and reality or myth and truth, um, as we were, you know, kind of thinking about this, I, I definitely feel like um, one of the, you know, statements that we hear uh, at times is that um, mental health care is inaccessible. Um, and I could see right off, most people want to talk about how, how big of a myth that is. Um, I'm going to say it's a truth as a BIPOC trans person, mm -hmm. um, a lot of lived experience and also working with people to try to get them into practice, um, whether it's even scheduling, figuring out a time. Um, I think we've all had someone who's just like, I could only see you on a weekend. And it's like, uh, well, this is my schedule when I work. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the truth is that mental health treatment isn't it is inaccessible and part of the reason i'm going to start off with one of the most obscure ones in the past few years so many of these little pop-ups these businesses of mm -hmm. apps and talk to people that's not therapy i'm sorry that's not mental health care i mean if you want to follow just what some of the other facilities again i don't want to name places not that i'm afraid but just mm -hmm. i don't want them to have recognition but they don't even do mental health treatment it's a check-in like it's, it's not really doing anything. It, it's, it's, here's a life preserver, stay afloat, don't drown. To me, um, the, the reality is that it's not accessible. And so how do we transform these systems, not just um, our practices, but these systems and how do we connect with other like-minded colleagues to create new systems? You know, I'm part of different consultation groups. Um, some of them are specific to gender care, but center the trans voices. Um, I'm part of a trans femme therapist empowerment group, other trans femme therapists that we meet monthly. Um, and I wanted to connect locally because I wanted to um, contribute to black liberation, um, people of African diaspora. And um, I've tried all sorts of things also. And really what it comes down to is because of my expertise, my knowledge, um, I decided to find ways to allow my skill set as a mental health practitioner be useful for this movement. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I've joined uh, a local group here in San Jose called Black Outreach. And Black stands for Black Liberation and Collective Knowledge. Mm -hmm. This is a local organization that kind of grassroots based on people who were violated, they were assaulted by San Jose Police Department. Um, and essentially just for standing up and protesting, like everyone in the nation, you know, a lot of major cities did in response to George Floyd's murder. Um, and in my involvement, my experience, you know, so many times mental health services have been needed by folks in the org itself, because I really wanted to make sure that, you know, with them taking on such a huge, mm -hmm. you know, battle, how can I be there for them? Um, coming up with concepts like healing circles to um, being present for, you know, conflict resolutions and stuff like that, as, you know, a lot of this, this um, struggle, these movements to fight back against um, systemic oppression, white supremacy, um, it leaves a lot of people fighting and in conflict with one another because um, mm -hmm. we're all pushing back against the same system. And so just kind of thinking up ways. Um, and so one of the newer ways that I'm trying to contemplate is how can I ensure low fee slots for those who are the most vulnerable 
you know, and again, something that is white supremacy, these laws can really undermine. There is a law um, here in the state of California where you cannot discriminate based on um, gender, race, and my understanding of the the um, the uh, meaning of that law, the intention of it, is to ensure those who are most marginalized get access. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, it would be illegal for me to give uh, preference or, or deference to people of color and, and give them low fee slots because somehow that's you know that's discrimination. And if someone wants to accuse me of that, um, they can easily contact the board that you know, oversees my um, license and open a complaint and all this other stuff. And so even the system of the field that I came to work in is making it hard, Mm -hmm. you know, making it tough, which again, makes it inaccessible, makes it difficult. Um, So yeah, I I think that's one of the things I I just want to get off my chest is like, it's not as easy as talking to someone on a screen. That's not even therapy anyway. When you're in person, when you're really with someone, you know, there's less walls. It just allows people to just really tap in and be vulnerable, you know, more likely mm-hmm. to be vulnerable. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's, and this is actually the interview that's going on before you, because you're going to be the second interview for this month. Um, we were talking about similar things as well. That was with Dr. Jonathan Lester, uh, I'm sorry, Lasseter, uh, and the aspect of how much the sense of what is therapy compared to, I mean, really what we're describing about what we're getting on with these apps and so forth is more case management. Yes. uh, Thank you. That's the word. I'm going to borrow that one. (laughs) It is. It's just yeah. case management that they do. Yeah, they're basically just doing case management, which is not actually always about, depending on the case and situation, mm-hmm. not always about improving. It's like you said, they're just giving the life preserver and letting you float there, not actually pulling you out of the water or helping you get out of the current so that you can actually swim to shore if need be. And meanwhile, not just the pandemic of COVID, um, but the lack of response, the immediate response to COVID in the early stages mm-hmm. has created a situation where there's actually more water flowing in. Mm-hmm. Currently, the water is rising for a lot of people. Um, it may not be for, you know, again, those who have the privileges and benefits. Like I've done superbly well because I could still work and I could do video sessions. Mm-hmm. But there's so many people who don't have that option and mm-hmm. really don't have things to fall back on, you know, because mm-hmm. even if I wasn't a therapist, I can fall back on, I can get hired in some other thing. I have a master's degree. Someone will hire me something, you know? So that's the other hard part about it is like, if you're going to do case management, like that should have been the model back before a pandemic. Now, like we need a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really do believe that um, so few people recognize that we're all really going through one big mental health crisis collectively, you know, mm-hmm. as a, on a globe, global scale, we are all going through that. And so um, that patience is definitely needed when we are out and about, if we're running an errand or, you know, seeing a client and just recognize that, that extra, you know, that folks need. Mm-hmm. We're all dealing with a complex trauma situation. 
Yeah, yeah. And a lot of us have gone inward. A lot of us have chosen like, oh, this virus is not a threat. Um, and, and yet, you know, what kind of a threat? A biological threat is one thing, and that is for certain people, but it's an economical threat for everyone. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the financial resources, then that becomes a biological threat or a housing threat or employment threat, social threat, you know, so many people in relationships in the last few years that I've known about that have dissolved, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's been really rough. And so, yeah, the truth is that mental health treatment, quality mental health treatment is not accessible. It's only available to certain people. And if I can give you a racial breakdown on my current client population, that's what you would see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I equally, I try to supply, supply that in, in my practice as much as I can and still keep enough coming in to keep the lights on for the business and keep the lights on for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Because as you know, BIPOC queer therapists, you know, we got to, again, keep our business open. And, and that's mm-hmm. the other thing, you know, I think even going back to how different people confronting this global, you know, this trauma around the pandemic is like, some people want to believe the threat is not there. Well, mm-hmm. I would love to do that. And early mm-hmm. on, I remember contemplating if it's as serious of a virus in terms of illness, but then I had to go start thinking like, but that's only to my body. Mm-hmm. I could, I could be contributing it to, for it to enter someone else's body. Mm-hmm. And I just sense that, um, you know, culturally America is very diverse. So there's going to be differences already. And yet a lot of Western cultures are so much different than other cultures in that it is so much focused on the individual. Mm-hmm. So an individual feeling held back because a larger group is not benefiting, it doesn't vibe culturally. And I think mm-hmm. that that's again, where white supremacy enters and it's like, how dare you, how they force your child to wear a mask in school? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, how dare they offer surgery for life-saving surgery for your child? You know, like it, it's, it's really backwards. And, and it just seems to be, you know, purposely um, being, you know, stoked for political gain, for political purposes. Mm-hmm. And whether it is any of these things, whether it is being BIPOC, whether it is being LGBT, we are not a political item. No, we're not. We're not at all. But we are being exploited, um, just like um, other groups have been exploited. Mm-hmm. And um, that's also perhaps one of the tough things is uh, maybe there are some people who identify as white who are feeling exploited. Um, and yet it's a different type of exploitation where the exploitation, it's not true exploitation. It's just pointing out the truth. It's Mm -hmm. like for years, you want to indicate that this is all balanced and fair and it's not. And um, I'm sick and tired of hearing about black trans women being murdered because that is almost predominantly the only, um, you know, uh, here in the United States population that's, that's getting killed, you know? Meanwhile, a Persian white trans therapist, me, I can thrive and, and have a private practice and that's not okay. So, let those be words you think about for this time, folks. Definitely. Because we have all of these things going in. As we've also talked about earlier, we have our joys too. And yeah. we are a mixed bag. 
Yeah, and I think tapping into that joy is could be different for everybody. But um, definitely, if I can say one thing, is start to see how your existence is a gift. Mm-hmm. And it might be a gift to someone else, might be a gift to yourself, but just start to question that and, and in what ways it could be a gift. Just because there's got to be something, again, that we're here for, something, mm-hmm. something to do, something to contribute. Um, but ultimately, you make that meaning. You decide mm-hmm. that. You define it for yourself. And so how have I defined it at times? Well, um, you heard in my introduction, I, I think of myself as a healer, um, which was actually what I wanted to do. If you think back to the program I wanted to um, mm-hmm. apply for, for undergrad, which was like biological sciences, studying diseases. And that's what I do. I'm a healer. And except I don't heal the body. I heal the soul. That's, that's how I see it. Soul, mind, and emotions. Yeah. All of it's, all of it's one thing, really. Very much so. Yeah. We just, we just enter through the the soul entrance. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and being a part of this. And where can folks find you if they want to talk more and also come work with you? Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm not really big on social media with regards to my um, practice, um, but my website is www.lidavala.com. So mm-hmm. L-I-D-A-V as in Victor, A-L-A, just my name. Um, you might end up finding information about me because the internet is no longer as secure and private as we like about my music interests, mm-hmm. screenwriting interests. And, you know, you're always welcome to reach out and I will, you know, definitely inquire as to your reason for reaching out. And if it is, you know, um, for uh, wanting to be, you know, receive mental health services, I'll re- send you that way. If it's other sorts of collaborations, sure, we can connect and talk and, and see how I can be of, you know, help or participate. All righty. So we'll have more of that information in the show notes. And like I said, I want to thank you again and hope that you've enjoyed our talk today. And I hope everyone here has been able to listen and take this as food for thought during this Pride Month as we move forward and as 2022 continues on. So this has been Lita Vala and Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapists here at Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Listen for us more on Voice America Network. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.